you've got Bibles or want to take one from the pew rack in front of you, turn to Hosea with me this morning. It's in the middle of your Bible. If you're taking an ESV, an English Standard Version, I believe it's on 752. Hosea chapter 3. At one point in the first service, my wife told me that my seven-year-old son put his fingers in his ears and said, I don't want to hear another sad story from Daddy. So evidently, it's a lot of sad stories this morning. <clears throat> Started off with this one. We, uh, when I was a child, one of my memories that sticks with me was of a, the house of a friend of mine burned to the ground when I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And I remember the beautiful house, white house with columns, you know, wood, and had a, great, a lot of great rooms to hide and play in. So we, we spent a lot of hours in that place. And when it burned, I remember us going over to the house and seeing his mom sitting in the front yard, and behind her was just there was nothing left, just ashes. And her crying, and I remember her saying to my mom, it's not all this, it's the pictures. It's the pictures that I'm going to miss. You know, those pictures that represented all those memories of all the kids growing up and the wedding album and everything else. And I don't know if that had the main effect or what, but I remember as a kid keeping a little box next to my bed that had pictures in it. And just a few of pictures with siblings and grandparents. And every one of those pictures, it was the old pictures with the yellow haze, you know, to it, old cameras, but... Every one of them I, would, I could pick up and look at, and it would take me back to that place. Remind me of the sights and the sounds and the smells. It would help me remember and relive a part of my life that I've forgotten. I've still got the box somewhere up in my attic now, today. James Boyce called the chapter Hosea 3 perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible. And part of the reason for that is it is a picture, one of the most graphic pictures we have of the relationship that God has with His church, with His people. It's graphic, it's powerful. Let me read it, and we'll try to, to learn from it this morning. Hosea chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I, brought, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lecta of barley. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord, to his goodness in the latter days. Let me pray for us one more time. God, would you be our teacher? Holy Spirit, would you apply the words and the work of Christ to our lives today and change us from having been with you? Show us our sin. Help us to turn from it to you. There are those who are walking in and sitting in our midst this morning who are unchurched, who so don't have a background of, of knowing and, and loving you, we pray that they would know that today, that they would turn from their sin and grasp hold of the work of Christ on their behalf. And for those who have grown up in the church who know and love the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would remind us of your love for us, 
of the severity of our sin and of the process that you're working in our lives to change us, to make us more like Jesus. We pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just out of college, I went to Greenville, South Carolina to work at a Presbyterian church there, Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church with youth. And it was a great two years, fruitful time in ministry, and met a a lot of of great people, made some new friends. But it was a time in my life for those two years where I'd been walking with the Lord long enough, had been coming to the Lord in college as a freshman, and this was six years later, uh, and was was questioning, was asking some questions that uh, folks that I trusted their wisdom Every time I got a chance to, to eat lunch or to grab, to bend their ear, and the questions were along the lines of, hey, you know, the, the picture, one of the pictures that you see in Scripture of our relationship with the Lord is the, the picture of a husband and a wife, a, a marital relationship. And I was asking questions like, how far can you take that? You know, is it you have a kind of a honeymoon phase and then more of a settle down and commitment phase and then the depth of knowledge you know how, how far can you go with that how do you keep and this was where I was getting at I think was how do you keep that love alive I don't want you know as I, as I got to know people certain people in the church had become embittered or or, or different things seemed to have lost that first love and I was as a six year into my Christian journey was saying how do I how do I keep that how do I not lose that I want to always be excited about my relationship with the Lord. And everybody that I talk to tend to say the same things. Well, you've got to know a few things, be committed to those, and they'll change your life. And they'll affect everything else that you do. And those basics, those things that they would point to, were the, the basics of what we call the gospel. It reminded me of the, the movie City Slickers, where you've got Billy Crystal, who goes on this you know, cattle drive, his midlife crisis, and he's trying to figure himself out and what he's supposed to be about, and they're driving cattle through the, the countryside, and he looks at the cowboy at one point, Curly, and he says, you know, you city slickers, you, you spend 40, 50 years of your life messing your life up, and then you think one week out here is going to solve all your problems. He says, you don't get it. You just need to know one thing, and if you have that thing in its place, then everything else falls into place, and Billy Crystal says, well, what's the one thing? And he said, that's something you're going to have to figure out. <laughs> well, we know what that, that one, that two, that three, there's, there's, there's few things are. And it's, it's the gospel of Christ. Paul Tripp says it this way in his book on marriage called What Did You Expect? He said, it's not your typical book on marriage. He said, you'll expect techniques or personality tests or all, all kinds of things that are good things to do. He said, but this is going to be a book about the gospel. Because, see, the gospel, the truths of the gospel, they back into every area of our lives. And if we understand them and get them, they'll transform it. So let's look. What are those few truths? We see it here in the story of Hosea. The first one is this. There has been great sin, and the sinner is you. There has been a great sin, and the sinner is you. You see it in the picture of Gomer and Hosea. Gomer, you see her finding herself here in dire straits, morally, legally, economically. The, the opening chapters of Hosea is where the Lord tells Hosea, hey, go, go find this prostitute and marry her. You pay her dowry. Spend your time in, in the, the courtship process. Give up your reputation. All that it's going to mean to marry this prostitute. And then give yourself to her. And he does. They have a few kids and the Lord names them these weird names that are supposed to represent different things in the history of Israel. And then 
they get to this point in their life and she starts to get the itch. They've been married for a time. They've had a few children. And she goes back to her old ways. She leaves him. And she goes. And she plays the harlot. She gives herself to other lovers. And at the point where this story picks up in chapter 3, she has hit rock bottom. She has exhausted her, her charms. And here she's even finds herself sold into slavery. She is owned by a man. It's a bad place to be morally, legally, economically. Adultery in this culture was punishable by death. So she is property. She is in fear for her life. J.C. Um, not J.C. Ryle. Um, James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of a Greek play. And it's very graphic, but he says, we learn about the slave trade like this. There's a Greek play in which a fat man is put up for sale. And he said the bids are starting. You've got one man that says, 10 cent. I'll bid 10 cent for him. Another says, 15 cent. And another says, 20 cent. And then they start to joke between themselves. And they said, what are you going to pay 20 cent for this guy for? When you get him home, he's going to eat all your food up. And then the comeback is, oh, I'm not going to keep him alive. I'm going to cut him up and use him for grease. And then they put up a woman, and she is laid bare for the men to see her beauty, her nakedness. And then they start to put up the bids, but this time it's not 10 cent or 20 cent, it's $100, $150, $200. What are they wanting? They want to own her and do with her what they will. That's what Gomer's experiencing here. She's at an all-time low, and she finds herself in the city square on an on a auction block as property. But you don't hear $100. You don't hear $200. You hear, uh, 10 shekels of silver. Uh, I give 12. She is at an all-time low. She has spent her charms. She has lost any value that she may have had because of her sin, because of her adultery. The Lord says, hey, Israel, that's you. This picture, this horrible picture is you. You have played the harlot, and this is how you've done it. You've taken the dependency that you're supposed to have on me as your God, and you've looked instead to other nations to provide your security. You've depended on other powers to protect you and to provide for you, when I'm supposed to be that for you. I'm supposed to do that for you. And then secondly, you've, you've, your worship has become this blended and tangled mess. Some of the elements are still reflect your relationship with me, but then you've added in all these other things that that you're looking for benefit from. And so you've mixed it all up. And I'm just a part of your life and not the center of your life anymore. So what is it that makes a woman who's been so graciously rescued and married waste it all, like Gomer did? What is it that makes a nation who's been so powerfully delivered run to these other powers for dependence and security? Well, it's sin. It doesn't have to make sense. See, that's what sin is. It's, it doesn't make sense. When you think about Adam and Eve, they had everything right there in the garden. God said, I provided everything for you. Now, don't, don't go eat this one tree. Trust me that I'm enough, that what I provided enough. But they were unwilling to accept their limits as human beings. And instead, they tried to be God. They wanted the knowledge that God had. They wanted the power that God had. And the other attributes that only God has and we do too 
We don't like our limits. And so we try over and over to secure things for ourselves that God has said, I'm the one that provides that. Quit running to these other things, money, power, sex, whatever it is, to secure, try to secure the protection, the provision, the love that only I can give you. And instead come to me. See, there's been a great sin, and the sinner is you. But secondly, there is great love, and the lover is God. Hosea is the, the Christ figure, the God figure in this relationship. He's, he's the husband, but then he also becomes the master. You see Gomer up on that block being sold, people barely throwing in a few shekels of silver to not even the cost of a, a normal slave. And then from the back you hear 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. And then you hear the auctioneer say, sold to the man in the back. People look up, raise their eyes, and then you hear some people start to whisper, oh, that's Hosea. That's her husband, you know, the one that she's been cheating on. This might get ugly. See, what he could have done is bought her back, and then right there on the spot, declared trial. Accusations fly. This is what she's done. Punishable by death. Let's do it now. But he doesn't do that. Instead of punishment and accusation and death, he takes her, he covers her up, and he disappears with her through the crowd. Covering her shame, taking her away as his. It doesn't cost him much monetarily, but this is a huge cost in a bunch of different areas. A huge cost to his reputation, a huge cost to his pride, a cost to his vengeance that was rightfully his. He said, no, I'm going I'm to swallow that. I'm going to take that upon myself. A cost to his freedom and to his, his plans and dreams. This isn't what he hoped for. This is not what he wanted in a wife, in a relationship. A cost of heartbreak. Have you ever had your heart broken? I have several times in my 35 years. A couple that I remember. One was my first pet, Bambi, a chihuahua. We were, my brother had... Uh, I've won a trip to the, see the Braves play back before the Braves were any good. And we were all excited. We packed up the car to go. It was raining. My dad said, I'm just going to pull the car under the garage. And he ran over our pet. And then we had to sit there in the rain while he buried her. And he was crying. And we were crying. First time I ever saw my dad cry. Loss. Heartbreak. I mean, he said he would wake up days later seeing her little eyes looking at him. Yeah. Second thing that hits me is my my first relationship. I dated a girl for a couple of years, and I sacrificed my freshman year of college to go home every weekend to see her and work on this relationship that I thought was going places. And then as soon as she graduated, she said, you know, I, I think we ought to see other people. Crushed me. Heartbreak. It's one of those things you feel in your the pit of your stomach. You... You know, you don't want to come out of your dorm room for days. You, you, how could this person that, that knew me just cast me to the curb like this? Now, that was a dog and a first relationship. Okay? This is a marriage relationship. This is someone that he has committed his life to, that knows him on the deepest levels, probably more than anybody, any other human being that he's got kids with. And she turns her back and she walks out. 
think that's not cost. Just the cost itself of heartbreak. And that's exactly what Hosea does for Gomer. It's exactly what God is saying he does for Israel. He says, Israel, I have put my reputation on the line when I entered into a covenant with you. And you've messed up, but I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take the responsibilities that were yours. Listen to Ezekiel 36. This is how he says it. He says, Therefore I say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, house of Israel, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is how he's going to do it. This is how he's going to vindicate his holiness before the eyes of the watching world. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. He says, I'm going to enter into a relationship with you, Israel. And I'm going to keep my end of the deal. And Israel, you're going to say, but God, what if I mess up? Won't it ruin your reputation? And God looks back and says, no, because I'm going to take care of that too. This is how I'm going to vindicate myself. When you turn your back on me and your adultery, I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to take your heart of stone out. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that knows and beats for me. I'm going to do all that. So that I will get the glory and you'll get the joy. What would it take for God to deliver on his promise to love? Just like Hosea, it would take great cost. Ultimately, the cost of his only son, who would come into the world and do what Israel could never do, what you and I can never do. He would be our sacrifice. The atonement made before the Lord. He would be our reconciler that would take two offended parties that were turned away and turn us towards each other. He would be our second Adam. The first one would mess it up as our representative, but Jesus would come and do everything that was needed perfectly. He would be our redeemer to buy us back off the block of slavery. He would be our legal substitute that would sit in a court of law and take the punishment, the judgment that we deserve to set us free. Would it cost them? You better believe it. But see, that's the only kind of love that gives life. is sacrificial love like that. There's been a great sin, and the sinner is you. There is a great love, and the lover is God. Thirdly, there's great change, but that change is hard. There's great change to be had, but that change is hard. You see, Gomer, now not only married, but now purchased, twice owned by Hosea. And he lays down some stipulations. He says, hey, no longer will there be this sin tolerated. But there's also going to be a distance in our relationship for a time. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because you are not just one who commits adultery. You become an adulterer. 
It's become who you are. And there's going to be a process by which, though I, I own you, I'm married to you, I love you, there's going to be a process in place now that wrenches your hand loose of those idols so that you can more and more grab hold of the love that I have to offer you. The stricture is intended to rid Gomer of her debilitating vice. And in time, she'll come full circle, so the text says, to be enabled to love more deeply than she ever thought possible. Well, the same thing as Israel. See, God was telling Israel, hey, you're about to be exiled. All these nations that you just trusted in and you put, gave money to and, and dependence on, they're about to betray you and take you over, and you're going to be into exile. And so you're going to have distance, not only from these things that you had corrupted and the power of nations, but also from the things of God that you've been using wrongly, and that you mixed up in worship. There's going to be distance in our relationship. But it's all to break you from your idolatry so that instead you'll learn to, to love and know and embrace me. And it's the same for us, brothers and sisters. We have good things in our lives, all of us, that have become great things, too great of things that we hold as idols. We say things like, God, if you would just, and I've said this so many times, God, if you just give me a wife, then everything will be perfect. Or, God, if you just give me a child, that's, that's the longing, the desire of my heart. If you would just give me that, then everything will be perfect. Or, God, if you just reconcile my marriage, then everything will be secure and perfect. Well, if these things are what you need more than anything else in the whole world, then it's what the Bible calls an idol. Ray Cortese said it this way, Why would God feed your idolatry? Why would God reconcile your marriage if it's the rival in your life for his affection? What husband would go find a boyfriend and try to help his wife have a better relationship with her boyfriend? Why would he improve your marriage if that's the thing that keeps you away from him? See, sanctification, and we just said it, is the process of God wrenching our hands loose of all the things we've been clinging to so that we can grasp more and more of the love of, of God for us in Christ. Our confession says it this way, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. We're enabled more and more to die unto sin, to let go of our idolatry, and to live in a righteousness, to live as the right way, the way we're supposed to and designed to live in a relationship with God. Justification is the declarative act of the righteousness of God on our behalf. But the matter of sanctification is, is a process. It's where the fullness of Christ is more and more communicated to us. All of those things he did for us, his reconciling work, his, his sacrificial work, his legal substitutionary work, all of those things, the Holy Spirit can use to apply to us. He gives us pictures and glimpses and applies it to our hearts so that more and more we say what a great lover what a great husband what a great master and we start to let go of these things that don't satisfy and wrap our arms more tightly around him who has loved us what do we do with our idolatry we let go and we cling to him and the more we cling the more we can do all the other things in our life and we could apply it to any area of our life, but just take marriage. If we have and know the love of God, then this is what we can do in our relationships with our spouses. We can enter into marriage, first of all, with fullness. 
being free for the first time to really love your spouse because you're full somewhere else. You don't have to suck the life out of them. You can be giving life. You can enter marriage with security. God has seen you naked on the block at your worst and loved you. You don't need that security from anybody else now. You can be free instead to give. You have purpose in marriage. And it's no longer your own self-fulfillment, but it's to show your spouse, this, this husband, this lover that you know, God, to be the bringer of salvation, the message of salvation to them on a regular basis. I'll end with this. We, one of the saddest uh, days of my life was going with some friends to the funeral of their, I think she was four-year-old uh, daughter at the time. She uh, had been born with heart defects and had a heart replacement um, early on, the first few days of her, her life. And I didn't know this at the time, but I didn't know that hearts only last so long. And through complications, she went on to be with the Lord at an early age. And the pastor during that ceremony said a lot, but one of the things that stuck out in my mind was he said, he said, you know, y'all have walked, he's speaking to their parents, he said, y'all have walked with this little one and you've carried her to doctor appointments. You know, you've carried her when she's not doing well and she's not feeling well. And now you've carried her and you've laid her at the feet of Jesus. And he he said this, he said, the next time you see her, it's going to be she that grabs you by the hand and carries you to the feet of Jesus. Last verse says this, Afterward, the children of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord, literally all humility, and to his goodness in the latter days. We've got a lot of hope as Christians to see our loved ones and, and the new heavens and the new earth. To see the, the greatest thing, and even our loved ones will be there to, to take us to him. And that's the lover of our souls will be there. And we get to enjoy him for eternity. You're a sinner, and it's worse than you ever thought. God is a lover, and he's better than you ever thought. And he's working change in you. If you've committed yourself to him, trusting in his life and righteousness, he's working change in you. And it's hard change to wrench those claws loose of your idols you're holding on to. But where he's taken us in the end is to enable us to grasp the height and the depth and the breadth of the love and to know Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your pursuing love. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for the things we're holding tightly to. Enable us even today to repent, to turn away from those things and to turn towards you, to grasp hold of of you who have loved us in such great and costly ways. And God, continue to work on us. Don't leave us like we are. Wrench our hands loose from our, our idols and our adultery and enable us to in all turn to you and your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.